I really didn't think to get involved until I started seeing the violence up there, you know? I saw the video of the dogs attacking uh, the protesters, and I think it was kind of in that moment that I knew things were getting bad, and that it was wrong. This is Amber Morningstar Byers, an artist and student living in Santa Fe, New Mexico. She's talking about the Standing Rock protests in North Dakota that sought to prevent the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline near Native American land. Amber's a member of the Oklahoma Band of the Choctaw Nation. For her, these protests connected her to both her people's past and their future. We are our ancestors. We are, you know, we are the result of the actions that they took many, many years ago. Obtaining that humility that I am nothing more than my future generation's survival. You know, what I do today, the decisions that I make today, the actions that I take in this moment are going to affect my children, my children's children, my children's grandchildren. I have to admit that I very rarely think back to my distant ancestors, or forward to my future grandchildren for that matter. And most of us probably don't think about the past and future in such personal ways. But what if we did? Could this way of thinking have something to do with the surprising success of the Dakota Access protests? And more generally, how do our views of history affect the way we act today? This is Ministry of Ideas, a podcast about the way big ideas shape our lives. I'm Zachary Davis. I remember when the Dakota Access protests first showed up in my Facebook feed. Friends shared articles, photos, and stories from the large protest camp where thousands of people, including Native Americans from more than 80 different tribes, camped out to oppose the construction of an oil pipeline near tribal lands. It was the largest gathering of Native Americans in more than 100 years. Amber was one of those protesters. We rented a 20-foot U-Haul. Me and uh, three of my classmates, um, three other indigenous people who go to the Institute of American Indian Arts, and we we raised a little under $8,000. We filled it with about five cords of wood, Tons of uh, donations, food, um, blankets, clothing, um, medical supplies, and um, we drove it up there. I strongly supported the protesters. But what good was my support when it consisted of nothing more than Facebook likes? I've asked myself since why I wasn't willing to be like Amber and drive to North Dakota and put my body on the line. I think the reason is that deep down, I expected the protest to fail. I wanted them to succeed. I really hoped that they would. But the history of Native Americans in the United States, full of broken treaties, stolen land, and forced relocation by the U.S. government, just made a victory for big oil seem inevitable. My imagination was limited by my pessimism that the future could be different from the past. But I think the paralysis I felt about social action isn't limited to pessimists. In fact, whether you think the world is inevitably getting better or inevitably getting worse, both attitudes can lead to a retreat from public engagement. After all, why get off the couch if it doesn't make any difference? The idea that the future is already decided is not new. It would have felt very familiar to the ancient Greeks, who viewed history as an endlessly repeating loop. Individuals couldn't change the future. It was controlled by the fates, three divine figures who held each person's destiny in their hands. You might remember them from the Disney movie, Hercules. Ladies, 
<laughs> I am so sorry that I'm... Nate, we knew you would be. We know everything. Past, present, and future indoor plumbing. It's gonna be big. Great, great. Anyway, see, ladies, I was at this party and I lost track Wait, of... Wait, now! I know you know. For the Greeks, the fates determined everything that happened. You couldn't change the future, but simply had to learn to accept it. There was no meaning or purpose to history. It was just like the passing of the seasons, a cycle of the same kinds of events happening again and again. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? A different view of history began to develop in Jewish and Christian thought. For the writers of the Bible, history was not a series of unconnected events, but the vehicle by which God realized his purposes for humanity. Doctrines such as the creation, the resurrection of Jesus, and the last judgment gave history not only a beginning and an end, but a direction. Tonight, I want you to go back with me 1,900 years, and I want you to see the three greatest and most momentous days in human history. This is evangelical minister Billy Graham in a 1952 sermon recorded for his Hour of Decision radio program. Those three days changed the history of the entire world. They changed the course of civilization. Because on those three days, we have the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. According to Christians, God had a plan for human history. Time was no longer a meaningless loop. It had become an arrow. Ancient Greeks and Christians may have thought about history's shape in different ways, but they both believed that history was determined by divine power. But that began to change during the Enlightenment. Instead of God directing history, thinkers like Voltaire and Kant began giving a starring role to human reason. The purpose of history became less about preparing humanity for a paradise in heaven and more about achieving progress here on earth. But it was the generation after the Enlightenment the misfit band of artists, poets, and philosophers that we call the Romantics, that started the radical idea that humans could shape their own destiny. Joe Gouldy, a professor at Southern Methodist University, explains. At the core of Romanticism is the conviction that individuals can change, that they can be transformed, which leads to thinking that societies can be changed and transformed by the power of ideas. Both the American and French revolutions were inspired by this romantic faith in social transformation. After all, what is democracy if not the idea that citizens can collectively determine their society's future? Democracy takes the power of history away from the fates and gives it to the ballot box. But a new god has risen up, planting doubt once again among citizens that they are truly in control of their destiny. This is the god of the market, we sometimes call it the invisible hand. The invisible hand is a phrase that was introduced by Adam Smith in his great book, The Wealth of Nations. That's Milton Friedman, the Nobel Prize winning economist famous for advocating free market solutions to most social challenges. He uh, talked about the way in which individuals who intended only to pursue their own interests were led by an invisible hand to promote the public welfare, which was no part of their intention. We may no longer believe that divine fates are deciding our future, but we too often think that large economic forces are the only significant driver of historical change. Take climate change. We know we're harming the planet. We have ideas on how to reduce that harm, but the momentum of industrial production feels impossible to stop. 
It is not a failure of science or technology, but a failure of imagination. That is why, according to Joguldi, in the fight against climate change, studying history might be even more important than studying chemistry or meteorology. There are many historians who are concerned about climate change or become historians of the environment and are looking to moments of um, ecological transformation in the past for good or for ill as models telling us what can go wrong and what can go right. History can be like rummaging through a toolbox in search of just the right tool, a guide to solving current problems. Knowledge of past events and ideas can help us see an alternative to a future we assumed was inevitable. History allows us to imagine another way forward. One of the uses of studying history is models of how social change happens. They give us a different sense about how nations are shaped, not merely by the hands of endowed institutions founded by millionaires, but also through these these bottom-up organizations redefine how all of us interact with the world around us. To me, Amber Byers represents the kind of bottom-up and hopeful change that I think Joe is talking about. What is especially interesting about Amber is her motivation. She wasn't out in the frigid North Dakota wilds because she was sure that her actions would change history. What motivated her instead was the desire to be a witness. When I went up there, I didn't think to myself, I'm going to make a change. I'm going to make a difference. I, I just simply had the mindset that I cannot sit by, I cannot stand by, I cannot just watch what's happening without at least having my voice be heard, you know? And I think that that's, um, that that's something that is kind of ingrained in an indigenous mindset. There was no question in my mind, you know, what was right and what was wrong here. What would happen if we didn't think so much about effectiveness and more about simply doing the right thing? Although Amber has become deeply involved in the ongoing opposition to exploitation of Native American lands, she remains hesitant to see herself as an activist. Instead, she simply sees herself as one small part of a family tree extending both backward and forward. She feels her actions connect her to her grandparents and her future grandchildren. Amber described for me a different metaphor for imagining the shape of history, not as a loop or an arrow, but as a chain. A chain that links all of us to a shared past and a common destiny. Long chains with strong links can lift very heavy loads. Maybe, linked together, we can lift one another into a future that now seems unattainable. Ministry of Ideas is produced by Nick Anderson, Zachary Davis, Pallavi Kathamasu, and Virginia Marshall. Music is by Steve LaRosa. Special thanks to Alex Kingsbury and Dante Ramos from the Boston Globe for their ongoing support. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support us by sharing us with your friends, reviewing us on iTunes, or visiting our website at ministryofideas.org and making a donation. Ministry of Ideas is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a Boston-centric collective of smart, idea-driven podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at hubandspokeaudio.org. Today I want to tell you about a Hub and Spoke show called Soonish, the podcast that tells the human stories behind the technologies that will shape the future. The show is hosted by a witty science journalist named Wade Rausch, and he does a brilliant job unveiling the human struggles and hopes behind a lot of the technology in our life. Our recent episode on the past and present of Boston's complicated renovation of the historic Longfellow Bridge might interest listeners of today's Ministry of Ideas. Check it out at soonishpodcast.com 
or anywhere podcasts are available.